welcome. Had a little technical difficulties in the back, so it's the communion problem there. So. Um, this morning, you know, I'm going to pray a second, just clear my own head. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to just be with you again this morning and worship you and Lord, to remember your death for our sins. Your body was broken, your blood was shed, and we just remember that and know that. That is our life. This is why we live because of that. And we want to always be grateful. Just ask you, Lord, to speak to our hearts today. You'd encourage us this morning. And Lord, you know the deep needs of our hearts, and we ask you to meet those. In your name we pray. Amen. So today, another strength of our church. Oh, my, first before I get going. There's a cake back there. We're celebrating Gigi's birthday today. Gigi's not here. <laughs> She's sick. So happy birthday. She's probably watching. So happy birthday, Gigi. <laughs> okay. All right. We could sign the cake and send it over to her also. <laughs> so another strength of our church over the years in our community here is, um, and, and some of you may know this, I, I know I have the advantage of knowing more of this stuff, and, uh, but we have been for many a resting place and a healing place for people who have been wounded or shamed or let down by other churches or Christians. And that has been something that, you know, God has used us in. And, and many have talked to me and said to me how they've come here and found a safe place to be healed. I, I have heard that so many times. And so I'm going to take that and I'm going to connect this with last week and do some all kinds of gymnastics here to, to make all of this happen. But first, some books here. I think on the first slide of the sermon, if, if that comes up, there, here are some books that um, I um, want to mention that I'm using today. And, and what I found is for me, certain books have entered my life at really important times and have had a profound effect on me. So the first two are by Larry Crabb. And they are called, the first one is called Shattered Dreams and the Pressure is Off. And these, I'll, you'll see how these all tie in as we go through the thing. And then the next one are by Philip Yancey, two really good authors. Um, they were close friends. Uh, Larry Crabb's no longer with us. Um, but, um, and, and they write in similar veins, but different. And Philip Yancey wrote Disappointment with God about Gosh, we were still living in Columbus before we came up here, I read, and just profoundly late 80s impact upon my life. And then what's so amazing about grace and the Jesus I never knew. And each of these books addresses this issue of being wounded in church indirectly. There are a lot of people who have written about this more directly today, you know, in the past 10 or 15 years. These, these were all written a long time ago, you know, 30 or, you know, years ago, many of these or more. Um, what I am not going to do is talk about 
kind of what I would say would, would be direct or purposeful abuse and manipulation within a church or with church leaders because that would just take way longer than a 35-minute message to even begin to touch on. But what I would like to do is talk about what I would say is indirect, sometimes unintended spiritual abuse and manipulation. And that happens a lot where un unintentionally people of goodwill can spiritually abuse others or manipulate others. And it comes from, like I said, people who are trying to help. But maybe sometimes they don't understand boundaries. Maybe sometimes they offer uninvited advice. And I, and I think all of us probably have done that ourselves or have had it done to us. Most likely both. We've done it and it's been done to us. Sometimes it comes from just a misunderstanding or maybe ignorance of the negative impact that our methods and approach have on people. You see, we can be wanting to do stuff that's good, but sometimes we use an approach or a method that is not good. And those, our approach and methods matter significantly. Sometimes a good heart with a bad approach can have a negative impact. And, and often because our hearts are good, we are unaware or ignorant of the negative impact. And maybe not as positive, but not too negative, sometimes church, church leaders, Christians have a mindset problem. They're, they believe, or we believe, you probably have all done this, that our way of faith and discipleship is the one right and only biblical way. And so with that, it's like, well, everybody's got to do this. Because it is the biblical way. I remember years ago, my early, early days in, in church, you know, the church we're involved in, you know, their, their focus, their slogans and everything was the New Testament church today. And that we were doing it the way the New Testament did it. Exactly like that. We were basically, you know, kind of bringing it all in, you know, trying to relive it out. And what I've come to learn over the years is, you know, there is not a Christian church that at some point in its beginning did not think that way. There really is not. No new Christian movement church thought, let's do church that isn't like the New Testament or the Bible. That has never happened. Now, and, and look how different churches are. Sure, some as they go along get way out of whack or far away from the Bible, but they start with this deep desire. 
we, we need to, we know that there is not one right, only one right biblical way with so many things. What the first century church did, the first century Christians, they tried to live out, become the gospel as faithfully as they could in their culture and context. And that's what we learned from them. Oh, how do we live out and become the gospel as faithfully as we can in our context? Sure, we can learn a lot. There's a lot of examples, but that's all. The rest is us taking that and thinking, how does this get worked out in this world, in my context? We are not to replicate that. We are to learn from it. There's a big difference between those two things. Sometimes Christians and churches are motivated by spiritual selfish ambition. It's not that they have evil intent, but they have ambition. And it's spiritual, but it's still selfish ambition. Like, you know, they really want to build a church, so they're going to build a big church. And there's nothing wrong with building a big church. But there can be selfish ambition behind that. They want to build a holy church. Church should be holy, right? That's a good thing. But there may be selfish ambition behind that. And you know that is when those wanting to build a holy church tend to be very judgmental of people who aren't making their holy standard. We know for sure then, oh, there is selfish ambition going on in this situation with these folks. And maybe even worse, sometimes spiritual abuse and manipulation comes from an attitude of superiority and arrogance. I remember in my early Christian experience, we were doing campus ministry and we were like the best ones. And and literally thought that like somebody choosing between us and another campus ministry, if they chose the other, well, they got second best. And that is just appalling, sinful, and evil. Now, let me give you two examples of this, just practical examples, and not picking on anyone. These are just two that popped into my brain this week. First one is, let's say there's someone who's really passionate about evangelism and witnessing. That's a good thing, right? They have the gift of evangelism. That's a good thing. They're successful at at evangelism. That's a good thing. And they developed a method and strategy that has worked for them. All that's good stuff. Until they believe that everybody should do it this way, should have their same passion, and their same gift. And then they impose that on others. Maybe those who don't have the gift that they have. Or maybe others who need to use a totally different method of doing it. That need a different approach to it. 
Here's another one, another example. There's a person, a people who have the passion and heart for the family. Well, that is a really good thing. We should all have a heart for the family. And, and so these folks, they come to a place where they believe they have found the biblical way to raise children. And to put upon that, they have been successful. Their children, you know, are like Blake Wobegon, only better. <laughs> they all follow Jesus. They all, you know, <laughs> it's just wonderful. And that's all fine and good. There's people out there like that. And that's fine and good until they impose their method and approach on everyone. The attitude of, well, this is the biblical way. But you know, there, the Bible never says this is the biblical way to raise children. It just doesn't say that. It doesn't give us a step-by-step biblical way. And this happens in so many ways. Those are two. I won't. Financial stewardship. There's all kinds, you know, all kinds of people put out the biblical way to do that, right? And then they make you feel bad if you haven't followed that biblical way. Well, a lot of these kinds of things, again, I think they come from really good heart places. Really do. They look good, they're successful, and they work for some, right? They work for some. They sound biblical, and they always have verses attached to them. So we think, oh, okay, okay, it's got, it's got a verse. It's got five verses. Makes it even better. And then the people are genuine, good Christians, But for reasons we look at, we'll look at here is they maybe unknowingly are wounding people. They really are. We're making people feel shamed or whatever. They put, as Larry Crabb in his book that I mentioned, is kind of a series, those two books, talks about, he says they put huge pressure guilt and shame on others. They're not trying to. That is the result. And they can create significant forms of legalism. What I'd like to do is give some safeguards to people of goodwill when it comes to these things. And let me three things that who have a misunderstanding or maybe some ignorance on their impact, who, like all of us, have control issues. We all have control issues. And what happens is we don't see those control issues when we are doing things that we think are good which are, and are good. We don't think that we can do good things and allow our control issues to be involved in those, but they can, very much can. And then a, a third thing, and this is really one of my favorites, in that oftentimes they don't realize there, is a, there are flaws in their hermeneutic and all that means. 
is flaws in the way they read, and I talked about this a little bit last week, interpret and apply the Bible. So for me, the last 20 years or so, I have engaged in an in-depth, consistent study of how people read, interpret, and apply the Bible. That does not make me an expert. It just means it has been something that I have been passionate about for this reason. As I look, go back in my own life, and I think of my own church wounds, disappointments, shame, and guilt. Personally, for me, what I can do is I can say, for the most part, they came from good churches, good people who love Jesus, are serving Jesus, yet I would say now had some fundamental flaws and misunderstandings on how to read understand, and apply the Bible. And that led to some poor, misguided, inappropriate applications of Scripture that were harmful to me. And as I realized, I thought, you know, I don't ever want that. I, I remember just, I don't ever want to do that. Because I know how hard that's been for me. And I'm just, Still learning. I, there's, that's why there's no such thing as a Bible expert. <laughs> Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit. Not even Paul. <laughs> Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit. Like I mentioned last week, we need to read, interpret, and apply the Bible the way the Bible wants to be read, interpreted, and applied. And that, not according to our presuppositions or our tradition, or even our biblical, what's the word I want here, biases. Yeah, I think lots of do. we know this is what the Bible teaches, so we read it that way. And we never ask, is this what the Bible teaches? We just never ask that. No, we've always believed this is what the Bible teaches. And we never thought to ask, is it? We were told that, but is it that? So Larry Crabb talks about this when he, when he talks in this whole kind of focus here. And I think why good people wound others and this is what his books are about himself, because he was, was wounded by these things. And he says, kind of along this line, I'm going to paraphrase it and I'm going to read it. But paraphrase, he goes, we, that there's our form of faith and discipleship, there's a form of faith and discipleship that goes like this. If we follow the playbook, the Bible, which is viewed as a book of rules, laws, formulas, promises, commands, practices, examples, works like a blueprint or an owner's manual. If we do all of that as fully as possible, life will work and turn out the way it's supposed to. And you'll be blessed. 
and it's kind of guaranteed. There, to quote him, he says, if we get it right, all of that stuff, and he takes the whole book to explain it, so I really condensed. We'll enjoy deep peace, our kids will love us, our souls will be refreshed and rested, our ministries will provide fulfillment, we'll feel really good about who we are and excited about living till we die. And what Larry Crabb basically says is that worked for him for a long time until it didn't. And then when it doesn't, it's kind of like, it's a little bit like your bank account. You know how a bank account, your balance sheet goes up like an escalator, but then it comes down like an elevator. And I think that's how this all works. We have this growing escalator of discipleship and faith. And then stuff happens to us. And it feels like that just goes off a cliff. That's, I think, how God kind of tends to work with us. Jacob, you know, he's just being Jacob, and then he gets in his wrestling match. <laughs> and next thing is, no, the rest of his life he's limping, and that's what he's known for. And they don't even eat certain parts of a cow because of it <laughs> till this day. And every now and then, God comes around and touches the socket of a thigh. And it breaks. And some of us, many of us have experienced that. I am going to give us an example of, in the Bible, of this kind of discipleship. And it is a, um, it is a parable, one of Jesus' parables. And... He, um, it's the most familiar one and the most loved one, and it's the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son. So, I, and, and I'm going to, let me look at the first uh, verse, Luke 15, 1 and 3. And it says, I don't even, have we had any verses yet? Oh, no. <laughs> now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, Tax collectors and sinners, they are the people who maybe or maybe not had a discipleship and faith that worked but then didn't work. But one thing for sure, they were the people who the religious institutions and people of their day wounded, were wounded and shamed and disappointed. The Pharisees and the scribes were the religious people who their discipleship was working. They did it right. But it's about to know, they're about to go off the cliff because Jesus has come. And they're the ones who have done the wounding, shaming in the story. So I am going to skip the whole part about the prodigal, because that's not what we're going to talk about. We know the story, you know, the one son. There's two other parables told before this about a, 
about one, one in a hundred sheep that runs away. We know that. And then 99, he leaves and finds the one. And then there's the woman with the 10 coins, loses one, finds the coin after sweeping the entire house. And then we get to the father as two sons. The one says, give me my money, give me my inheritance. And he goes off and we know he wasted on bad, bad living. He loses it all. He's eating with the pigs. And then he comes in and, um, you know, he, he comes to his senses. I will go back to my dad. Since I'll be a slave from now on. You know, I'm not unworthy of son. He goes back. The dad's waiting, looking. Sees him, runs out, and gives him a big hug. And, and the son says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. And he goes through his spiel. He confesses everything. And then we get to verse 22. That's where we're going to pick up on the next slide, if it's up there. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put on a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate. Now, I am gonna take some license with this. Okay, I am not going to do serious biblical exegesis. I am going to relate this parable to what we're doing. So forgive me for that or just allow me this one time. The first thing I see here is after the son goes through his confession, father does not say the things that we would think he's supposed to say. He never says, oh, son, I forgive you. Doesn't say it. He doesn't say, well, son, I'm glad you're back. Now, what's the moral of this story? What could we have done differently if it comes up again? No. What does he do? He ignores the son. He turns away from the son after this massive confession, which, you know, the son's just waiting for, oh, please, please forgive me. He turns to the slaves, his servants, and says, oh, Let's have a big party. My son is back. And what I would like to, with a little license, say is I think that this is the Father's way of doing faith in church. See, the way this Father likes to do faith in church and discipleship, he sees it as a celebration of the resurrection a celebration of new life in Christ, a celebration of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And I think that's the way the Bible wants us to read the Bible, as a celebration of those. It says it right here. Why do we celebrate? Because this son was dead. He's alive. There's new life. The next slide. Now the older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he thought, oh, no, dad is backsliding. He's music and dancing. He's going to hell. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. That's odd. <laughs> what do you mean what these things could be? It's music. 
It's dancing. Nothing more. He's not sure what to do with it. And they said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Next slide, verse 28. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. Father comes to both children. But he answered and said to his father, and here it is, his Larry Crabbe moment. Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. The older son was living a faith and discipleship that did it right. And it worked for him. For so many years. But now watch. And yet, you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. So it worked until it didn't work. And then when it didn't work, he went off a cliff. He needed to unlearn his understanding of discipleship, of faith, of church. And then on the next slide, verse 31, the father said to the son, you have always been with me. All that is mine is yours. It's not about doing it right. It's about the generosity and grace and love and mercy of the Father. We had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother, your brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. We do not need to perform to get stuff from God, to get blessings, to his promises, his faithfulness, his presence are not based on our performance. But it's a celebration of the resurrection, grace, mercy, and forgiveness. So I want to close with two practical applications to this. And the first one is... Um, I think we've done a lot of unlearning, so we just may need to unlearn some more and relearn some more, just to keep on going. And I think this one will be very familiar to all of us. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and yoke here is teaching and discipleship. He's take my teaching, my form of discipleship upon you. So what is that? Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Does your discipleship cause you to, your soul to rest? Or strive? Or anxiety? I am humble and gentle heart, you will find rest for my yoke is easy to bear. 
And the burden I give you is light. I, I know I've mentioned this in the past, but I always think of Dennis Canable when I read that verse 30. For those of you who don't remember Dennis, he's been gone a while. It's the plaque up there, he passed away in 2005, but was here when the churches merged many, many years ago and was a pastor of the other church and became a pastor with us here at this church. And I, I just, of 10 years of friendship, what always amazed me was he just always wanted to lighten people's discipleship load. He, that was just his nature and the person that he was. And you know, a lot of times, preachers and pastors, and I think they do it from a good heart, but they emphasize and communicate in such a way as to make people think that following Jesus is hard. Now, following Jesus will bring about suffering. That's a reality. Suffering is a reality, a part of life. It's just there. But following Jesus isn't, he's real clear, it's not a heavy burden. It's not a great weight. He says it is easy to bear, a yoke that is easy to bear and is light. And that is, just doesn't fit our culture and world at all. We believe that for something to be worth doing, it's hard. Yes, it's hard. But I think he's speaking here of the guilt, shame, anxiety, performance. These spiritual burdens that we bear that God does not want us to bear. He does not want us to carry. Because he's carried them all for us. He bore them all for us on the cross. And then one final practical. So that's the first one. We need to lighten the load for ourselves and for others. And then the second thing is we need to learn how to be wounded healers. Henry Nowen wrote a little book called The Wounded Healer. Um, what he, the main point is that Jesus is the wounded healer. Isaiah 53, by his stripes, his wounds, you are healed. We have been healed by the one who has been wounded. But we can also learn to be wounded healers. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted every way just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. He has been through everything we've been through. He has suffered. He has been sick. He has been wounded. So that he knows. And yet we need to be the same. It's a quote. I believe this is from Larry Crabb. It may be a actually from, I don't know, one of the books I read this week. I forgot to write the author down. We must realize our power to speak or minister on God's behalf to wounded people 
depends on our ability and willingness to know and speak out of our own wounds. We need to be willing to go there and then speak out of that and live out of that so that others who've been wounded and shamed can be ministered to. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. We have we are all wounded. We are all human. And our wounds have come in so many ways. So they're all different. But they have the net effect is the same for all of us. Thank you that you're the wounded healer. Your load is light. Your burden is not heavy. In your name we pray. Amen.
life eternal. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the saints' communion and in your holy church. I believe in the resurrection when Jesus comes again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is free. So this is a Thanksgiving week blessing. May our hearts be grateful. I did not cry when I was writing this. <laughs> May our hands be generous. May our tables be full of love, laughter, forgiveness, and God's presence among us. Let's make it a very thankful Thanksgiving. <laughs> 